You all hear me okay? This is weird. Gordon had to do it twice. Um, it's a joy uh, to be back. I, I want to thank you again for affording me the opportunity to take uh, the summer to sleep. No, not, not sleep. I, a uh, lot of reading, a lot of writing, um, studying, preparing, and uh, you've invested in me to invest in time that can pour out beyond the walls of this church in, in the form of other ministries uh, that God would allow me to do, whether it be uh, teaching at Trinity, uh, presenting papers at conferences and things like that, to try to push the envelope on what we mean by preaching Christ. That's what I'm trying to do with the writing and all the reading. I want to invite you to pray with me. Uh, I, I asked my wife this morning, I wonder if it just feels like getting on a bike again, or <laughs> because it was longer than three months. We did the, the Zoom call thing for a while, where I was just kind of sitting at my desk, you know, and I had all my papers in front of me, and somebody called me cheating. I think one of my students said I was cheating. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I just hope and pray that the Lord would speak to us through this passage, this text, this morning for the encouragement of our souls. Now let's pray together. Father, we, we do recognize this is your world, and we pray that as we think through how to live in it, while it's broken, while it's under bondage, teach us how to live in this broken, bound world. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, uh, that we would be reminded of your goodness and your grace, and that we would accept its challenge by asking you for the strength to live into it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, that gem of a passage in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Of course, all of Scripture is God's Scripture, it's God's Word, but there's, there are certain places in Scripture that are well-traveled by Christians over the years, and this chapter certainly is one of them. And it's a, it's a point in the book where he talks about suffering. And you think about writing to a group of Christians that are living in a place like Rome, in a place where persecution is hot, where um, immorality is rampant, championed, where the top government leader thinks himself to be God. Right? This is a very difficult place in which to live. And so he talks about suffering. But there's a difference between general suffering and Christian suffering. Paul is not just talking about general suffering that everyone experiences, but there's something specific to being a Christian that prompts another layer of suffering that others won't have. In fact, he explains that to be a Christian is to suffer. That suffering is integral to adoption. I've been really praying about how far to, to move into this, but... Uh, I think this whole COVID thing is its own form of Christian suffering. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to gather with other people. You don't have to sing with other people. You're not supposed to greet other people. 
What's to tell you you're supposed to do those things? What's difficult for the Christian is we're supposed to fellowship. We're supposed to be with each other. We're supposed to sing with one another and to one another. And so it prompts a dilemma, doesn't it, for the Christian in a way that it doesn't for the rest of the world. And so the COVID uh, experience that we're having now is, is a kind of Christian suffering because we have commands from Christ to do certain things and then a virus that makes it difficult to do those things in safety. But lest we be too quick to complain, lest we be too quick to grumble, Paul is teaching us that that's, that's actually a stamp of you belonging to Christ. That it's a part of what it means to be adopted into God's family. So I want to do a little overview of chapter 8 and then explain to you where we're going to dive in. The first eight verses of, of chapter 8, Paul explains that there's no condemnation. You are not under the law. If you are in Christ, you are, you are not condemned. So if you die, you know where you're going. Don't let the, the enemy, the devil, someone else, your neighbor, tell you that you should fear death or fear suffering. You don't have a spirit of fear because you've been freed from condemnation from the law. That's the first eight verses. And then verses 9 through 11, he says, the reason why is because you have the Spirit, and the Spirit gives you life. You can live according to what the law demanded, because you're not a slave anymore. You've been freed, and you live in the power of the Spirit, and you can do the things the Bible commands you to do, even when it's difficult, verses 9 through 11. And then it gets tough. In verses 12 to 17, he explains that this is what adoption looks like, and he says in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons and daughters, children, family. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. You see how this text is like going up and up and up. Not just children, but heirs. Not just random heirs. Heirs of God. And he says, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then it goes down. Provided we suffer. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, you're heirs now, but you haven't arrived yet. You're still on your journey. If you take the Israel story as a picture, you got out of Egypt, but you're not in the land yet. This is wilderness time. And in this wilderness time, it is time to suffer. And if you do suffer, then you're guaranteed that promise in the land. Now, you could at first glance see this as saying, suffering is how you earn glorification. Suffering is how you finish the race, how you earn the end of the race. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is suffering proves that you're in the race instead of on the sidelines. How do you know you'll be glorified? Well, part of how you know it is suffering as a Christian. That's part of how you know you're adopted. Welcome to the family. It's going to hurt. That's how you know. And so with those passages leading into our passage for this week and for next week, I want to take two weeks to look at this chunk of verses in verses 18 to 25. 
he goes into suffering a little more, and he wants to give you an encouragement so you can suffer well. Now, there have been times and places in Christianity where we wouldn't have to linger that long here, but in our culture of easy living, microwavable foods, drive a block to get an ice cream, right? Everything is easy. Everything is comfortable. And there's a sense in which the COVID thing hits us harder than other generations that are not so spoiled. And so he wants to unpack suffering for them a little bit and give them two reasons why suffering is not a problem for the Christian. The first reason he gives The first reason why suffering is not a a major problem for the Christian, of course, it hurts. But it's ultimately not a problem for the Christian because in verses 18 to 25, he says, because the coming glory far outweighs what you suffer now. The glory coming far outweighs the present suffering. That's reason number one. And then reason number two is verses 26 to 30, God will sustain you in it. God will sustain you. Today and next week, I want to take a look at that first reason. Suffering is not a monstrous problem for the Christian because the coming glory dwarfs it. But friends, if we have a small view of coming glory, it will be very comparable to us. And in fact, in our own minds and our own experience, our current suffering dwarfs our expectation of coming glory. And that's a really hard place for a Christian to be. He wants to reverse that for you. That your vision of what's coming is so grand. Your your view of what is coming is so big that it outweighs being fed to lions. That it outweighs execution. Torn from your family. And the dangers that come with meeting God's expectations for Christ's family, adopted sons and daughters in Christ. So let's start to unpack this. We're zooming in on that first point, how the coming glory far outweighs our present sufferings, and I want to spend two Sundays there. So join me in verses 18 to 25. What does he mean by glory? He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, again, Christian suffering. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If we were sitting at a table and I asked you, what is the coming glory? How would you describe it? You know, brass trumpets, angels, do they have wings? Can you see them? Are they transparent? Are they like this thing, you know? Are they large? Are we floating? You know, we just have such a foggy idea of coming glory. How can we possibly view it as outweighing present suffering? This is real. This is tangible. Right? You're breathing your own breath in that mask. You can smell that. You can taste that. You're sick of it. It's fogging up your glasses. This is tangible. This is real. Glory. How do I cling to that? Well, probably because we get too much of our information about glory from far side comic strips and Hallmark cards than we do the Bible. That's the first problem. So as we look at Paul, he sees that 
that might be a question. What is glory? And he's going to unpack it in appropriate detail. We don't have all the answers of what glory will be like. We don't know exactly what it would be like, but we know enough to have an idea so that we can grasp it, understand it better, so we can cling to it, so that it can serve as a hope for us. But if it's just a foggy idea and none of us know how to define glory, we don't know what glory is, we just sing about it, and we say we're supposed to hope in it, but really, it's not, it's not really our hope. Our hope is that we just don't die for a really long time. Our hope is we get to enjoy retirement. Well, it's difficult to cling to something that we have no idea what it is, so he explains in the coming verses, that our hope of glory is not ultimately a heavenly one. Our hope and glory ultimately is an earthly one. What's glory like? Well, what's the earth like? What's it going to be like to move and walk, be, you know, move around in glory? Well, what's it like to move and walk around now? Creation isn't something that just goes poof because God says, I messed up, that wasn't a good idea, scrap it, we're going to be transparent, floaty beings now. No, he created and he said it was good. Our sin put it under corruption and bondage. If God just scrapped it, it'd be like he lost. So he looks to creation to describe glory, not clouds. Well, literal clouds as part of physical creation, right? But look what he says. Let's just read straight through to verse 22. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So we'll just pause there because the next chunk we'll unpack next week. But focusing on this creation that we live in, this creation that you wake up to every morning, As you look around yourself and see this creation not looking super great today, I was hoping to match a little better with a a sunny outdoor service. But as you look around creation, you're looking at what will be glory. Because that's what he says. The coming glory is the creation that will be renewed when it's freed from this bondage. It doesn't quite look like it now. But when it's freed from this bondage, it's not going to turn into something non-physical, something non-creation. It'll be good. In fact, it'll be better. And so he explains that this coming glory is coming and not now, because right now, this creation that's around us, as beautiful as it is, as much as it is the signature of God, as much as it has God's fingerprints all over it, it has been subjected to futility, meaning it, it doesn't fulfill its purpose. It's supposed to be a place for us to live in and worship God and draw us closer to God, but it's full of storms and earthquakes and diseases and viruses. It's broken and it's damaged. And so it's been subjected to futility because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do and the world is not right. There's something wrong with it. 
And Paul says it's, it's longing, it's waiting, he says, eagerly. It's groaning for the time that it will be free. And he likens it to labor pains in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So all of creation, of course he's personifying creation. We don't believe in Mother Earth like it's, you know, like it's an actual person, but he's, he's personifying it to say all of creation is under this curse and is awaiting a time that it will be free from the curse. Kind of like labor. And if your mind races back to that first uh, curse, right, when God spoke to Eve and said, in difficult labor, you will bear the seed that will eventually crush Satan. In other words, labor reminds us that through pain, something glorious is born. And similarly, with all of creation, the storms and the global weirding and the animals with fangs and venom and the insects that sting and the gnats that crawl in your eyes, right? Just all of the ugliness of the world reminds us that it's in pain, but we'll be freed from that pain unto something glorious. And it's longing for it. It's waiting for it. And in that expectation, part of the, the reason why there's suffering and difficulty and futility now in this world is because it enhances our expectation for what's coming. God wants to sort of press you so that you can long for Him. He uses the subjugation of the world, the difficulty we experience in this creation, the viruses, and as a result, that mask you're wearing right now, He's using it to cultivate a longing in your heart for what's coming. I mean, prior to this, did we really think much about death, disease, comorbidities. But it's causing us to think about things in a new way. And what Paul wants is to remind us that we're supposed to think ultimately of where we're going to be because that glory outweighs anything that is thrown at us in this corrupted, bound creation. And what is it waiting for? Verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God, which he repeats in, in different words in verse 21 the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so, sons of God, most of the time, refers to angels, but here it's referring to Christians, and we know that because he already used sons for Christians in verse 14 and verse 15, and then he, also, and then he switched it to children in verse 16 and verse 17, and then he's doing the same exact thing here in verse 19, sons, and verse 21, children. So he's not talking about angels here, he's talking about you and me. And there is a coming revealing of the sons. I mean, you're a Christian now. If you're in Christ, you're a Christian now, but you're not arrived yet. And there will come a time at, at, for your own resurrection. And we're going to look at that next week. But it's kind of like when Paul opened up this entire book in chapter 1, when he gets to verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ is declared the Son of God in power. When has he declared that? At the resurrection. Well, was he the Son of God before the resurrection? Yeah, but at the resurrection is when it was revealed. It's when it was declared. See? 
So you're in Christ now. You're not under condemnation now. You don't have to wait for that. But what we are waiting for is the freedom from the corruption, these bodies that are susceptible to viruses, freedom from that. And he says it's the same thing with earth. It's the same thing with nature. It's the same thing with creation. Creation is messed up now, but it won't be messed up later. And so don't think that you're clinging to a hope that releases you from this earth. This earth is the hope, but an earth that's renewed, an earth that's redeemed. That's why we, the Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth. If somebody is in Christ and dies today, of course they're in heaven. Heaven is a holding place. Holding place for what? The renewed creation. So we can have a better sense of what it's like. What is it like? Do you remember when you were 22 years old and you were able to run and wake up without bones cracking? Do you, I mean, do you remember that, right? Imagine just staying there. Do you remember when you didn't need glasses? Imagine never having to worry about the attrition of your eyesight. And so we do get a glimpse, don't we? God is not like, just trust me, it's going to be great. You have no idea what it's like. No, you do have an idea what it's like. The garden was beautiful. Sin entered it. Thorns and thistles came about. So imagine roses, no thorns. Imagine hiking, no gnats. I don't know how far to push this. Maybe gnats serve a purpose I don't, I don't know about. You know, uh, my family and I were on a hike, and one of the first things we noticed in this beautiful mountain hike was there no mosquitoes. Like, look at that, a hike, and we're having no mosquitoes. These are things that you can get excited about it. Some of you are like, oh, I hate camping. Well, what do you hate about camping? Besides being lazy, what do you hate about camping? Because God, God will erase laziness too, I'll have you know. Oh, the weather is too this, the weather is too that, bugs. You know, animals on the trail, you've got to bring bear spray, I'm scared. I get it. Imagine a kingdom where the lion lies with the lamb. Want to camp now? You want to hike now? What if there is no venom? What if there are no bites? You see, he gives us enough to be able to imagine what it can be like so that it can stoke your hope and excitement for it. But if we just think about clouds and brass trumpets and it's like, I don't even know how to play a harp, that's going to be really boring. A really long church service in a super large cathedral somewhere that never ends. God is not a boring God. And I, ho- I know we're going to have awesome gatherings, right, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and I'm sure there's going to be horns. And maybe, I mean, we have eternity to learn how to play harps. Uh, we are not close to these things, right? But what did God plan for creation? He planned for man to subdue it and rule it, not be trapped in a, in a sanctuary in a perpetual worship service. Where did we get this idea from? Right? There's snatches and windows of it in the book of Revelation. It doesn't say that's all there is happening. But we worship God in exploration. We worship God through inventions. We worship God in the hikes and in the traversing of creation, subduing it, which man has already started, albeit imperfectly, because we are also under corruption and sinful. And so we're awaiting this resurrection 
and we look to creation around us, and we see creation itself is waiting for its own resurrection. And it's this physical, non-rational creation that Paul is talking about. Now, angels are created, man is created, but he's not talking about angels, and he's not talking about people. And the reason why we know that is because in verse 20, he says the creation was, what, subjected to futility, not willingly. It's like creation had nothing to do with this. Creation didn't sin. Creation didn't rebel. Creation didn't shake its fist at God. So to personify creation, it's like creation loved God. This was great. We messed it up. But God deemed it fit to put a curse even on creation so that we have to walk a wilderness journey in a messed up place. Not so messed up that we don't have an idea of what the promised land will ultimately look like, but just messed up enough to know you're still in the wilderness. And he wants to use those difficulties in the wilderness experience to stoke your longing for what's coming. And so he's talking about earth, animals, vegetation, rocks, hills, trees, rivers, Wind, maybe seas, maybe not oceans. I'm not sure about oceans. Revelation says the sea will be no more. How symbolic is that? I don't know. But I think all the fun that we can get out of water sports without the drowning and the whirlpools and you know all the crazy things that come with that, somehow an earth that supplies life doesn't take life is what we're longing for, a creation that is missing the corruption that it's bound to now. And so we think of an earth that is a glorious earth, an earth that is the earth that it's supposed to be. And our hope is in an earth that is free from those corrupting things. And it's not a wishy-washy hope, it's a sure hope. Why? Because God did it intentionally. See? Who subjected it? God subjected it. Why? Hope. To stoke hope in you. And so one of your sources for building up your hope in the resurrection is to look around you and appreciate creation for what it's supposed to be. This is Paul's point. That might be more and more difficult. The harder it is to see the stars, the more light pollution there is, the more we build buildings and pollute everything, it might be more difficult, but you might want to get out more. He says that this is a sure hope because God plans it. He planned that corruption, and He planned that corruption for a reason. The reason why He planned that corruption is so that the new earth will be better than the original earth. I'm talking about the garden we tend to have a, a theology where God is trying to get us back to the garden. No, he's not. We will never go back to the garden. An age of innocence, you'll never be innocent. No condemnation. But he doesn't remove condemnation by going back in time and removing the guilt. He handles condemnation by taking the guilt on himself so that forever we will worship Christ, not as just creator, but we will worship Christ forever as the Lamb who was slain. We're like, in heaven, are we going to remember sins? Yeah. Otherwise, we'll be worshiping this Lamb. Why was he slain? That's kind of gruesome, weird. I have no recollection of how I 
don't deserve this lamb. Of course you'll recall why you deserve that lamb, because you'll be worshiping out of gratitude for eternity. And God's plan and purpose was that worshiping him, having been rescued from damnation, is a better world than worshiping him, never having known it. So while we did the willing part, and creation had no willing part to play in it, God mysteriously has his own purpose in it, so that what we intended for evil, God intended for an ultimate good. Seeing that a new earth with redeemed worshipers would be better than an original garden with worshipers that never knew evil. And this is one of the reasons why we embrace suffering. Suffering makes you a better person in eternity than you would have been had you never suffered. The new earth will be better because it was under bondage than it would have been had it never been under bondage because it's populated, subdued, and ruled by people who appreciate the rescue. And so we are not looking forward to a return to innocence or a return to an original garden. What we're looking forward to is a redemption and renewal of what God has created. That might sound like splitting hairs theologically, but unpack that in your minds for a while. It makes a big difference. When you're asking yourself why you have to suffer, why you have to go through something, because God is making something out of you that you couldn't have been without that suffering. God has a purpose in it. You may not see the purpose now, but just experiencing pain Right? You don't have to be able to draw a line between every moment of pain and every ounce of benefit it reaps in this life. Oh, I suffered that because now I get this. You're not always going to be able to draw one-to-one correspondences. You don't need to. Pain of any kind, pain in general, especially the kind of pain you experience for being a Christian, suffering with and for Christ. Just experiencing it makes you more resolute sharpens you to run this race in ways that it wouldn't if you were left comfortable. So we're not suckers for punishment. We don't want it. We don't want trials. We don't ask God, oh Lord, I pray that this week will be a real disaster. We don't ask Him for it. We don't leap headlong into it. In fact, we pray the opposite, don't we? Some of us ask, why would we pray, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil? Well, because temptation also has the connotation of testing and trial. So you're not asking God, like, God, would you this week please not lure me into sin? God doesn't tempt to sin. So what does Jesus mean in that prayer? You're asking God to help smooth out your path this week because last month I could barely take it. God invites you, in fact, commands you to pray that way. So we don't go looking for suffering. But there's a difference between caution and escapism. The cautious Christian is careful. You don't go to the hospital waiting room, touch all the surfaces, and then suck your fingers on purpose. I hope I get the virus. Right? That's lunacy. And you don't just walk around coughing all over everybody to try to prove a point, that's just being a jerk. But isn't there a fine line between caution and escapism? 
where we don't want any suffering, we don't want any risk, we don't want any dangers at all, we will take the safest route possible no matter what, even if it compromises a lot of the things that we're missing as Christians. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. As elders, we're going to be meeting soon. A survey already went out. We're trying to figure out how to move forward in this thing. I'll just tip my hand and say, I don't love the idea of splitting our church in half for a long time. Because we, are, we, we can assume that we're not really missing that much. It's worth sacrificing fellowship. It's worth sacrificing cutting our singing to one another, Colossians 3.16, in half. It's worth asking half of our church to stay home every other week instead of meeting together. It's worth all of that just so I don't catch this virus. Now, hear me correctly. I am not saying it's just a cold, get over it. I'm not trying to minimize dangers. What I'm saying is there is a fine line that we have to be careful about between caution and the worship of safety. Safety is not normal. Suffering is normal. That doesn't mean we look for it. When it comes our way, we have to recognize that there are certain things that we need to try to protect as a community. I know I've been away for three months, and maybe at the first elders meeting, I'll get a whole dose of things that I wasn't aware of, but to this point, I've been so encouraged by several things. One, just you all just rolling with it, right? We roll out an idea, and it's like, okay, and, and, and we're just trying to figure this out together. And I know in our congregation, we have people that if, if, if we could ask everyone to wear five masks, it would make them feel more comfortable, right? If we could just buy 100 hazmat suits, it would just make everyone feel a little more comfortable. And then on the other end, we have people that think mask wearing is probably verging on cowardice. Or like sheep just going with whatever the government says. It's kind of dumb. And then we've got people in between. What I appreciate is how patient those different kinds of people have been with each other in this church. That's awesome. I appreciate how patient this church has been with leaders who don't work for the CDC. We're not, you know, virologists or whatever the word is. I don't even know, how, I don't even know what that word is. People out there that make a career out of viruses. Apparently, it's not been a really well-established career because they, they don't know what they don't know. And we're learning a lot of new things in this pandemic. But in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of what's difficult, at the very least, we can begin to take Paul's prescription and stoke the longing inside our hearts for what's coming. We can endure the difficult things now because our hearts are longing eagerly for something coming. I had a friend tell me recently, you know, I really am not interested in the afterlife. This is a Christian. I'm not really interested in the afterlife. It's the here, the now, my family, my friends. And I understand where that's coming from. It's because this Christian doesn't know what's coming. How can you take Paul's prescription when he says the reason why you can endure suffering now is because the glory that's coming far outweighs it. But if you see suffering as really weighty, and it is, Paul, nothing in this book shows Paul minimizing suffering. He doesn't minimize suffering. He wants to maximize what outweighs it. But if we have a weak view of what's coming, in our minds and hearts, it'll never outweigh what we presently experience. 
And so if you're the kind of Christian that if you were really honest with yourself, you thought, man, I really am not looking forward to the afterlife. I'm not looking forward to eternity. I think there are some things you can do to stoke your longing for a coming glory. One of those things would be to get your theology from the Bible and not fiction. That the coming glory is an earthly one. So you do have an idea of what it looks like, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be like. And some things you can do to stoke it, I, I don't know. Grow a garden. You know, take a hike. Bike through a forest preserve. Get out there. What are the different kind of trees in your own backyard? Can you tell the difference? Adopt a pet. I don't know. There's not a one-size-fits-all. Interact with creation. And it's not just natural creation, but it's technology. Responsibly use technology. I mean, at one point in history, there's a precipice, and man doesn't know how to get over it, so man invents a ladder. The ladder becomes a helicopter. The helicopter becomes a space shuttle. This is part of, technology is part of how man subdues the earth and enjoys the earth and engages with the earth so long as technology doesn't replace engagement with the earth. In other words, you're, you're so tied up in the video games and your social media, you haven't been outside in three weeks. That, that's a problem. And so find ways to appreciate nature, appreciate the ways in which we have invented things. The inven inventions won't stop on the new earth. Man's ingenuity is part of what God has gifted man to subdue the earth. I, I mean, in this bondage and corruption, we've gone to the moon. What can we do when we're unfettered by corruption? When we're working together, not competing as countries? What can we do then? The universe is vast, and there's going to be a lot of things to explore and discover, and it's going to be glorious. Hope for it. Long for it. And you'll see how the things in this life that are difficult day to day, week to week, month to month, fade in comparison. They're difficult, yes, but you have to compare it with the weightiness of glory. And so he asks us to do that together. And one of the ways we do that is in reminding ourselves of the promise that makes it a sure hope, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we scheduled to have communion after service, and I'm just kind of calling an audible here, but can we do it now? Is that right? Or did, was that the plan? I don't know. I, I came in and I was, I, we didn't know what was going on, and we're pivoting because of a, the, the change in the weather and things like that. So we're going to enjoy a time of uh, fellowship over communion now, and I think the way that we'll do this is there will be a set of trays just like this out there. So if you're sitting outside listening to this, uh, there will be an usher out there with the, the trays. Um, the uh, gluten-free crackers, I think, are in the drink tray, if that's, if that's you. Uh, the crackers are individually put into cups, so less touching and things like that. Again, caution, hopefully not escapism on those things. Uh, but of course, communion, sharing the Lord's Supper, is a time of celebration for those that are in Christ, celebrating how they are no longer under condemnation. If you do not know Christ, and you're not sure what this is, uh, we just ask you to just, just hang out. Just sit, sit there and, and let us do our thing, and that's okay. Uh, but if you're in Christ, this is the time to examine yourself.
This is a time to think about and process uh, what God is calling us to in terms of hoping in Him. Uh, We might confess certain things, like hoping in other things, having a low view of glory, things like that. Uh, And we cling to Christ and we trust that He has done through His broken body and spilled blood what is necessary for us to have full forgiveness in Him without condemnation looming over us. So I'm going to start us with a brief prayer, and then we'll have the ushers uh, uh, provide uh, the trays out there. And then for this table here, just a, I don't think we're going to call numbers or anything. We'll just uh, approach the table with appropriate distance. Um, so let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we thank you that you give us a precious promise embedded in all of the nature around us. Um, that there's something coming that is greater than what we currently experience. Uh, That there's something joyful and glorious on the horizon, so glorious we can deal with the brokenness that we experience now. And it's a secured promise because of the brokenness that Jesus experienced on the cross and how he defeated that brokenness and defeated death in his resurrection. Now he sends his spirit, the comforter, to comfort us in his ascension and that he rules and reigns from his throne even now. And so, Father, we want to take this cup and take this bread with grateful hearts for uh, the assurance of that promise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.